Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Back to the normal double-header format. Nimrod Flaschenberg will examine the economic and class dimensions of the uprising in Israel, and AI critic Dwayne Monroe returns to look at the breathless reception for the latest version of ChatGPT. Over the last few weeks, Israel has been in turmoil, with millions out in the streets to protest the right-wing coalition government of Benjamin Netanyahu, a.k.a. Bibi. Bibi was Prime Minister from 1996 to 1999 and again from 2009 to 2021, and the governments he led were always quite right-wing. He returned in December to assemble the most right-wing government yet. His coalition partners include seriously reactionary parties that represent religious fundamentalists and crazed settlers in the occupied territories. Two of the most alarming ministers in the government come from those parties, Itamar Ben-Gavir, Minister of National Security, a violent racist, and Bezalel Smotrich, Minister of Finance, a self-described fascist homophobe. He was once arrested for plotting to blow up a highway, but he got off. The furthest right parties have been pushing Netanyahu to strip the courts of the power to invalidate legislation, a move that would open the way for even more repression of Palestinians than we see now. Much of the Israeli population has reacted with alarm to the proposal, which is one of the main reasons for the massive demonstrations of recent weeks. It was too much even for Biden, who gave the Israelis a sharp talking to. On Monday, Bibi withdrew the proposal, but it's not clear for how long. And, as compensation, he offered Ben-Gavir the opportunity to create his own private militia, a truly terrifying prospect. With more, here's Nimrod Flaschenberg, an Israeli writer based in Berlin and a former advisor to the Hadash party. A few weeks ago, his Hadash comrade Noah Levy was on the show to analyze the crisis. Here's another look from a somewhat different perspective. Both are contributors to 972 Magazine. 972 is the country's telephone calling code. Nimrod Flaschenberg. Is your country falling apart? I don't know if it's falling apart. I, I don't think we're just yet there. But uh, it is unprecedented, unprecedented uh, challenges on the street and demonstrations. And in fact, the right-wing coalition is behaving uh, quite differently from... Uh, how you would expect, like uh, Netanyahu used to be a very competent leader uh, with all of his uh, shortcomings and problems that are many, but he used to be very competent and it seems like he is not no longer in control. Uh, it seems that the radical right is uh, working him. Right now, between these protests, the threats of refusal by uh, army reservists and uh, the financial breakdown that is possible. I think uh, put together, uh, it is a very, very strange and unprecedented time. And I don't know where it's going to lead. I think also there's international pressure that's mounting. Uh, Biden spoke very, very harshly against uh, the legal uh, overhaul plan uh, yesterday. I don't expect much from the U.S., but it is clear that they want to make this stop and they have the power to do so. Did Netanyahu's retreat on the court uh, reform, did that have any effect? Or is that just a a temporary measure? It's a minor retreat. It was obvious that once a general strike was announced after his Ministry of Defense, you know, announced that he's not going to support the reform, uh, Netanyahu had to do something to to stop this building from falling down. So I think uh, he, he had to freeze it. And in any case, uh, now, you know, it's holidays soon here. The Knesset goes on recess. So it was the timing that all of the protests and his plannings were mounting toward this week. Uh, so he's going to freeze it. But I think like after he froze it, people on the opposition were not sure if this is a way of, you know, ramming it through more slowly in a gradual way or is it a real stop? And I think that uh, maybe the reaction from the international community could be a sign that it's uh, it's not going anywhere. Uh, in any case, uh, he has the parliamentary majority, but also his coalition is frail right now. Yeah, but no, how are the furthest right members of his coalition? <laughs> That's kind of funny to talk about people further right than him, but you know, uh, how are the furthest right people taking this? 
Well, um, that's that's Netanyahu's achievement right now. Like on Monday, the dramatic day in which the uh, general crisis uh, happened, Bengville was threatening that if Netanyahu freezes the legislation, he will uh, leave the government, maybe support it from outside within the coalition, but not uh, as a part of the government. He's not doing very well in his post as minister of police. Eventually, they struck a deal by which uh, uh, Bengville will get his own small army. Uh, a militia group that will be used to uh, attack Palestinians, I guess, inside Israel. And that was the deal that was struck. Uh, but I think Netanyahu was able to keep his right flank in order. What he was fearing was that his minister of justice, Yariv Levin, would quit. And that could probably be the first step in, in uh, the government's uh, crumbling. This did not happen, sadly. Uh, so right now it seems as if he was able to, at least for the time being, stabilize his coalition. Uh, but it's temporary. But if the government fell, what would take its place? I mean, the society seems really um, full of fissures. Well, <laughs> you know, we had five uh, election campaigns. I was uh, uh, very uh, active throughout uh, these uh, many years of uh, of. Uh, tough political fighting, in which, in general, you could say that the, the country has been moving rightwards. That is a fact. That is uh, what's going on. But uh, I think in this case, the Marxist analysis really hurt, helps, or the, or the Leninist analysis. There is an intensification of antagonisms that is happening now because the right-wing government is so extreme, is you know trying to, to go so far. And I think we are seeing it's not widespread, but we are seeing some notions of radicalization on the other side. And also, for the first time in these three years of, of so many election cycles, voters are moving from Netanyahu's block in the polls. Uh, this is happening for the first time. They, they, his like moderate right-wing supporters are realizing that he went too far. Is there any vehicle uh, that would act as an alternative to him? Uh, there are many. They're all very centrist. They're all very problematic. Uh, you know, it's Gantz and Lapid and the uh, usual suspects, uh, very militaristic, very right wing, not in any way progressive on the Palestinian issue. And there is uh, uh, the parties representing the Arab uh, population that could be a weight against the power of uh, Netanyahu, but there is no real uh, joint political uh, program between the centrist and the left that is uh, mostly led by Palestinians. Uh, so I don't know if I, I, I could imagine like a better coalition. There could be like a unity government. But I think there is a chance that the extreme right, like the settler-led occupation intensive government will not last for eternity as we did feel just after the elections, you know? So there was a shift in like the, the dynamism of, of politics did awaken in, in previous months, in, in the last few months. Okay, let's uh, talk some about your piece about the Israeli economic model of recent years. You quote uh, economic historian Ariadne Kromf as calling it isolationist neoliberalism. Could you uh, develop that theme? What does it mean? Yeah, I, I think like in general, uh, and I don't want to put things in uh, Ariadne's mouth, it's my reading of the of the case. Israel's economy since, I would say, uh, the early 2000s, since uh, Netanyahu's first uh, term as uh, finance minister, actually, and this is very connected to Netanyahu, has been uh, developing this model that uh, by which the high-tech industry uh, is an export-oriented industry that produces high-valued goods, is sold around the world. And this is paired with uh, this uh, notion of... Uh, regional, militaristic, aggressive, diplomatic position. If uh, in the 90s, during the Oslo years, there was a, a different type of neoliberalism that was more inclined to uh, integration in the region and so on, this type of uh, neoliberalism is based on military might and this isolationism. But I think the most important thing is the investment in high tech. Like high tech was a, a significant uh, portion of the Israeli economy in the early 2000s, but now it's dominating completely and is the driving force. This is the startup country story, right? Yeah, exactly. This is the startup country uh, and all of this. Uh, you know, so many of them are connected to uh, military industries or cyber and so on, but many are not. And this industry is like very, very uh, profitable. 
It uh, pays its uh, professional employees uh, huge salaries. It's increasing the Israeli GDP, but it is also increasing the Israeli inequality. And as we saw in this protest, it's not very well integrated into the state itself. You know, like in a way, most of these companies could get up and move at any uh, given moment. This is what we are beginning to see. Since this uh, protest began and the high-tech sector, both its managers and its workers are very significant inside this protest, uh, we have been seeing a decrease in, you know, it's, it's connected to the general uh, case of what's happening in high-tech, but we've been seeing a lot of high-tech people talking about moving their companies abroad or moving themselves abroad or moving their finances abroad. And this is a general phenomenon that we see among the Israeli elite. And uh, while the uh, economic model uh, delivers prosperity for the high-tech elite, um, it's not so great for everyone else, right? There's a lot of polarization and poverty. Yes, of course. Like uh, Israel's um, welfare state was disseminated uh, during the 90s and early 2000s. This was another part of Netanyahu's project. And in general, this model is also based on a very tight budgetary policy. So a lot of uh, foreign reserves, but a very low debt-to-GDP ratio. So, in fact, it was a constant tightening of the belt in which the high-tech was the locomotive that was driving the economy and the rest were just left behind. So the gaps in Israel have expanded dramatically. Since entering the OECD, I think it's almost always ranked among one of the last countries in terms of uh, inequality inside the OECD. And this was not the case, you know, like in the 80s or 70s. Or... I'm speaking with Nimrod Flaschenberg, an Israeli writer and former advisor to the Hadash Party, now based in Berlin. There's a line of uh, thinking that um, the judicial reforms, Netanyahu's politics in, in this government more broadly, um, would lead to um, economic isolation, the kind of realization of the BDS uh, dream here. Um, what, what do you mean by that? We need to speak about it in relative terms. I mean, obviously, the Israeli economy is very, very strong and has a lot of reserves and it can last, you know, quite a bit of challenges. So I, I need to qualify this by saying, you know, it's only relative. But I think that the Israeli economic model was based on the fact that, you know, even if it was uh, promoting apartheid and, you know, occupying another country, it was a good place to do business in. And this legal overhaul, uh, whether in terms of uh, the legal space, but more importantly, in terms of like how the Israeli elite feels about itself, makes the country seem like not such a good investment. And joined with the crisis in high tech in general, I think there is a, a big uh, possibility of a downturn in the Israeli booming economy. There is also like, you know, if we talk about like the similarities to the BDS campaign, we are seeing, you know, I see it all around me and like people I know, people from the middle or upper middle class in Israel are, you know, taking their money and putting it in banks abroad. People who have access to um, foreign passports are getting them uh, in order for them to, you know, secure their future. There's a very frightening prospect in Israel and it's destabilizing the, the, the economy and the society. So, it, it, you know, it's it's very connected. It's not only like an economic phenomenon. Of course, uh, an end to Israeli democracy, which people talk about, that's not necessarily bad for business. Yeah, I, I think I think this is the picture people are trying to paint, that it's connected. I think an end to Israeli democracy that never existed, but never mind. Like, let's 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 talk about it within Israel. You know, the democracy for Jews only, if it ceases to exist, it will be bad for high tech. It might be good for other industries like the weapons industry and the cybersecurity industry or other, you know, the gas. Now Israel found gas, so maybe for that. But I think for high tech specifically, there is a very strong link to, you know, liberal circles around the world. And I think like the high tech people, the Israeli high tech people would want to, many of them would want to move their uh, business elsewhere. Uh, it's not about, uh, I think, uh, democracy in the true sense of the interest of the capitalist. It's more an issue of uh, stability and, you know, cooperative population or elite that could uh, do their the business work here.
From what we know of the uh, in the U.S., the uh, the political thinking of some of the high tech people, uh, they're pretty anti democratic. Um, they have a, a reputation for being libertarian, but that means freedom for them, uh, but not necessarily for the rest of the population. Um, is there something similar among the uh, the Israeli tech elite? Uh, it's it's funny. I think I think um, not to that extent. I mean, it's libertarianism uh, is a small phenomenon in Israel. It exists. It exists, I guess, like disproportionately in high tech, but it's not dominant. I think like what we are seeing uh, in recent months is that the high tech sector in Israel is just you know a reflection of other sections of the Israeli elite. It's very connected to the military. It's very connected to uh, like this collectivist uh, national uh, understanding of Israeli society. And it's also like it's been telling this new story about Israel as this high tech nation and it's believing that story. So I think like uh, there is a lot of uh, implicit racism in this idea of like a Jewish uh, genius or something that I guess is quite a strong sentiment among uh, many Israeli tech people. But uh, in general, no, I don't think it's uh, it's it's libertarian. I think it's just like liberal, you know, while forgetting about like the most acute uh, violations of uh, human rights that are happening uh, just around the door. Don't have many good things to say about them. The other side of the libertarianism, you know, look at somebody like Peter Thiel is uh, they're quite authoritarian uh, and anti-democratic. Does that uh, apply? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are types like that. Uh, I could think of some. But in general, I think that uh, the authoritarian forces in the Israeli society are more connected to much more, <laughs> to a different project, and that's the settlement project. I think like the Israeli right is promoting uh, religious, conservative uh, fundamentalism that is very authoritarian and very, you know, homicidal in a way, like we saw in the pogrom in Hawara a few a few uh, months ago. Uh, I think the tech sector is, uh, you know, it identifies itself mainly with like Israeli centrism or Israeli liberalism. Uh, I don't think this phenomena of the Peter Thiel types is very prominent in Israel. And uh, the the rebellion that we're seeing in the streets, um, a lot of that is pretty upper class people. This is a rebellion of the elites. Yeah, uh, I I was there a few nights ago when uh, we blocked uh, Ayalon, the the main highway in Tel Aviv, or the main highway of the country, for hours at night after uh, uh, Gallant was laid off. I saw the people, you know, like I I would say it's the general uh, Tel Aviv public. Like now it's very so widespread that it uh, entails like large sections of the Israeli society. I would say, yes, more or less aligned with the upper middle class uh, and the capitalist class. But it's very clear that its leadership is connected to the Israeli elite, uh, the high tech elite, uh, military elite, of course, is very significant there. And also people from kibbutzim, which are a different type of elite. It's very Ashkenazi uh, in, you know, in Israel, there are Jews who, who came from Oriental countries and Jews who came from Europe. So like, I, I think there is a, a clear uh, ethnic divide here because uh, Mizrahi Jews, more of them support uh, the government's uh, parties. So yes, it is a rebellion of the elite. I would say it's more of a counter-revolution than a revolution, but it is now so widespread that uh, it reached uh, huge sections of, uh, of Israeli society. Like a recent poll suggested that 19% of Israelis were present in at least one demo in the past three months. So it's quite significant. Wow, that's a lot. Is any of this good news for the Palestinians? This government was probably the worst news for the Palestinians uh, imaginable. Uh, I mean, they appointed uh, this guy Smotrich, who is a genocidal maniac. I'm sorry, but that's just uh, the, the, the right attribute to be the minister of occupation, of like the civilian side of the occupation. They put Itamar Bengvil, uh, uh, a convicted terrorist, to run uh, the Israeli police. So I think like once the elections were over, it was clear that things are going very, very bad. And since the beginning of the year, more than 80 Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank. So things are very, very bleak uh, for the Palestinians and for the prospect of you know any future peace possibility. My optimism, my, 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 my terrible optimism suggests that maybe the international pressure that we're seeing 
and uh, the estrangement of the Israeli elite from this government would eventually translate into also including the, the question of, uh, of, of, of the occupation in this calculation. Because like, it is very clear that the people who are advancing the legal overhaul are settler leaders that are interested in annexation, that are interested in ethnic cleansing of the West Bank and so on. And I think this link is important to make. And I think some people who didn't make it are making it now. So this is my uh, sliver of optimism. <laughs> Thank you for offering that. They're hard to come <laughs> yes. by these days. Uh, yes. That was Nimrod Flaschenberg, an Israeli writer based in Berlin. You can find his articles on the 972 Magazine website at 972mag.com. It's interesting, Matt, as Nimrod said, the U.S. has the power to make Netanyahu stop his judicial reforms. It makes you wonder what else the U.S. has the power to do. Maybe stop Israel from terrorizing Palestinians both within its borders and in the occupied territories? Representative Jamal Bowman and Senator Bernie Sanders are leading a congressional effort to urge the administration to investigate whether U.S.-funded or produced arms are being used to abuse Palestinians. Of course they are. You barely need an investigation to confirm that. So far, this effort has only a few supporters, squad members like AOC and Cori Bush, but it is a start. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the cadenza that Beethoven wrote for Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 20, performed by Friedrich Gulda. Next, artificial intelligence. The hype over chat GPT, already intense when Dwayne Monroe was last on Behind the News a couple of months ago, has gotten even more so with the release of its latest iteration, and Google's release of its rather sad competitor, Bard. I thought it would be good to get Dwayne back on the show to deal with the frenzy. He's an Amsterdam-based software engineer who has a side gig doing Marxist analyses of the tech industry. Dwayne Monroe. Dwayne, since we talked last, um, there's been an awful lot of hype. I mean, well, certainly a lot of hype around AI for a long time, but the hype seems to have accelerated to a, a new level here with the brilliance of the latest uh, iteration of ChatGPT. We've got Google's now doing trying to do the same thing. I, I, I typed a prompt into Google yesterday asked to do a bio of me. It was more accurate than ChatGPT, but um, it's got a flatter pro style. Uh, I don't don't know who's programming these things. But anyway, you know, the the level of hype that this is just so world-changing and breakthroughs we've never seen before, no precedent for inventions of this magnitude. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with all that. What do you make of it? I've uh, given this some thought, actually, in preparation for our conversation. And I, I think I can break it down to four major factors. The first factor at the material level, is the fact that Microsoft invested $10 billion USD into OpenAI. And, and what that means is that uh, Microsoft is employing its massive marketing apparatus to promote this technology as, you know, as the next big thing. Because obviously they, they need to see a return on that uh, investment. Uh, everyone loves uh, Satya Nadella in the industry, or at least many people do, but I'm sure that their shareholders and the ch- the board um, are looking for results. Uh, the second thing is, as you mentioned, um, Microsoft's competitors in the space, Google and uh, Amazon and others who don't sit on quite the same Olympian perch have a fear of missing out, right? So Microsoft uh, made this announcement, this, uh, this merging of their tech stack with OpenAI, and that had everybody going, um, oh my God, this is amazing and so forth. Um, Amazon, who's accustomed to being perceived as uh, the leader 
no doubt found themselves experiencing some FOMO and decided to do their own thing, but it's not as flashy as what Microsoft has managed. And Google um, is also um, is thought of as uh, the leader, but they are playing catch up. So that accelerates things as well. Um, the third factor is the pivoting of many, many, many crypto hucksters very quickly away from the burning wreckage of the crypto space to AI hype. Um, I use LinkedIn as an intelligence gathering tool here, because if you follow LinkedIn, um, how would I say, with a keen eye or a cynical eye, you can learn a lot about what's happening. And then finally, and this is uh, more conjecture, but uh, it's a sense that I have uh, the tech industry is increasingly desperate to keep uh, its illusion of being a miracle factory going as limits are reached. I mean, there are new iPhone models, of course, but it's just no dramatic breakthroughs. And many things that were promised, like self-driving cars, are really a non-starter. So I, I consider this to be kind of their final gambit because they, they can't build time machines or warp drive or any of these things. And so this 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 may be it as far as the, them pretending that they're they're building the future. Well, you know, you sit down and type a prompt in this thing, and some of them are pretty amazing. Yes. And, of course, people find that very impressive. Uh, A friend of mine had uh, asked it uh, to rewrite uh, the opening of the Communist Manifesto into Valley Girl Speak. And (laughs) it was amusing. It was well done. I asked uh, it to write a column in the style of Thomas Friedman about chat GPD, and it was pretty terrible. It didn't really capture mm-hmm. the style of Thomas Friedman at all. Mm-hmm. But somebody told me I needed to use better prompts. But I don't know. I think you should be doing the work, not me. But anyway, um, yeah. wh- what do you say to someone who's just like, wow, gee whiz, I just typed this thing and look what it came back with. I'm really impressed. Yeah, no one, even those of us who are strong critics, no one is, um, is doubting the technical acumen of the teams that have produced the systems. Just as we don't doubt the technical acumen of people who produce an F-16, F-16 fighter plane. Obviously, they're quite adept at what they do, right? But the actual question is, what is the impact? And what is the cost? Not just the financial cost, but the material cost. And what is the purpose? Um, the question I always bring up to techies who get very excited is, why did Microsoft invest $10 billion in OpenAI? Um, and if you think it's because in the, the halls of Microsoft there, or any corporation, there was a gathering of elders who said, yes, we must advance human knowledge. Well, I, I have a bridge to sell you. Maybe maybe several bridges, actually, if, if, if you're willing to believe that sort of thing. And so, yes, that we have to separate our admiration or at least our acknowledgement of the technical capacity of the teams that produce these things from an analysis of, uh, of purpose and impact. Okay, what's going on behind the scenes? You know, I type this prompt. In a few seconds, it starts typing back at me. What's going on exactly during those, those seconds, and how does it produce this prose? So um, at a very high level, what's happening is that, uh, or the way that these large language models do their tricks, is that uh, text has been analyzed. Well, I should say, to begin with, text has been vectorized, that is to say, turned into abstract um, mathematical uh, tokens. That can be manipulated by a computer because, uh, of course, a computer doesn't know um, the words. It doesn't know that if I, if I were to say a sentence, I am talking to Doug Henwood on a Wednesday, well, the computer doesn't know what any of that means. But what you can get a system to do is to turn each of those words into a mathematical um, token. And then these tokens can then be found over and over again within patterns because our, our languages have grammatical rules, loose or strict but they have rules. Whether one is trained or not, in some strict sense, um, the way people speak, the way people write, follows rules. And because that's a bounded space, even though we, we are quite creative with our use of language, as Chomsky has often said, I believe it's what is infinite use of finite means, even so, there are rules. And so the mathematicians who have developed the, the algorithms that these systems use uh, can take advantage of the fact that there are patterns to then give the systems the ability to produce plausible text to see what should the next word be. And we're not unfamiliar with this from past experience. We, we know this from the, the, the autocomplete systems that we've been using for many years now. It's just that this is very similar, but on steroids, because there's a much larger uh, corpus. Where do these texts come from? What text is it scanning that's the raw material? The internet is a large source 
So Wikipedia, Reddit, Twitter, um, Facebook, so forth and so on. <laughs> That's like a collection of human stupidity, too. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, it is, and you know, because and and also, of course, you know, any text that's available online, like Project Gutenberg, many many things are available that these systems siphon up, vacuum up into their their massive corpus, of billions and billions of parameters. And then, what I should also add is that you you have the cleverness of the of the, of the mathematics, but you also have the application of massive amounts of computing power. Now, um, recently, um, there have been some announcements that you can also do this on your home computer, depending upon the specs. And that's nice, but that doesn't change the fact that it requires a a, a good amount of computing power to do the kinds of things that ChatGPT does. And so the combination of the clever mathematics and the massive amount of computing power that is brought to bear is what enables it to, to produce this plausible text that we find convincing and impressive because this is how we've grown up. I mean, this, this is the, we are beings who make meaning, right? So if a machine produces a, a sentence that makes sense to us, well, we're, we're going to be impressed. We're going to think, well, maybe this machine is talking to me. This is the same thing that Joseph Wiesenbaum uh, talked about, I believe, at MIT in the 1970s with the ELISA program. I mean, and my God, that's, <laughs> that's a lifetime ago. Um, and yet it was the same principle for a much, much simpler program with much, much less computing power at its disposal. Okay, let's go back to um, the development of this stuff. OpenAI, what kind of firm is it? Uh, who's behind it? Uh, what funding did they have? And how did Microsoft stumble upon them? OpenAI started, uh, I believe, around 2015. It was founded by, among others, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk. Sam Altman um, was, uh, was there from the beginning, as I recall. And the idea, its mission statement was that uh, AI is a very powerful and potentially quite useful technology. And so, as the name suggests we, OpenAI, will produce our uh, results, our, our breakthroughs, our research will all be open. And then everyone around the globe will be able to make use of it and advance state of the art in, in an open fashion so that whatever dangers may exist can be examined openly. Well, that lasted for a bit, but Microsoft uh, turned its attention to OpenAI and uh, about a year ago or so, actually a few years ago, Microsoft began work with OpenAI by producing the hardware that OpenAI was employing. Uh, Microsoft um, built um, a supercomputer for OpenAI called Voyager ESU2, I believe is its name, using many, many thousands of NVIDIA pro- or AMD processors. And then the direct investment um, is what has signaled this merging of the interests of the two organizations my opinion, just for, as a longtime Microsoft watcher, is that this is part of what used to be called an embrace and extend strategy in which you make an investment. And then eventually you have complete control of the thing that you invested in. We see this or, or steps along that road with the fact that OpenAI's uh, technology kit, ChatGPT and so forth um, has gone from open to closed, that they're not talking about sources and methods, they're not talking about power consumption or any of the the vital things that researchers or just people who are curious um, want to know. And as I mentioned before, the fact that it's deeply integrated with Microsoft's Azure uh, cloud platform, but also as an Adela, Satya Nadella announced about a week or so ago in the Microsoft 365 productivity suite that corporations around the world use with Microsoft 365 Copilot, in which like Clippy, which those of us who are <laughs> of a certain age remember Clippy, you know, you would start uh, a Word document and this annoying animated paperclip would show up and say, oh, I see you're, you're writing a letter. Microsoft has had a long-standing ambition in this area of intelligent assistance. This is the fulfillment, I think, of, of that mission, which started under Gates, actually. So the fact that there's such a deep integration of OpenAI's technology stack with Microsoft's cannot help but mean that it's going to be closed. I mean, Microsoft certainly didn't open up the the source code for Windows or Microsoft Exchange to the world. And, you know, with this investment, uh, they have no intention of of letting what now is considered uh, a strategic and uh, competitive secret to the world. I'm a pretty heavy user of Word and Excel, and uh, in many ways, they're very good, very useful. I couldn't work without them, but they're still not great after all these years. There's so many things that are still wrong with them. Microsoft has never had the reputation for being terribly innovative. And you know, Clippy is you know, kind of dorky and not very cool. Yes, it was very, it was very goofy. So uh, 
Microsoft doesn't seem like an ideal fit for what's supposed to be such a cutting edge technology. What is what do they bring to it? What they bring is uh, deep integration with with corporations. And that's the thing. Um, so as a person who's been in the industry for for a while, um, when I would uh, work with younger colleagues, they they were always talking about Google. It was Google this and Google that. Um, and then and then a little later, Amazon um, via AWS. That was the sexy kit, right? If you wanted to be the cool kid, you you built cloud stuff on AWS, and you your your productivity suite was on Google, um, and you did your development against those environments. But meanwhile people who were actually making money <laughs> in various industries that were not sexy uh, and that were not really concerned about um, about the valley at all. They just wanted to do what, whatever they were doing, whether it was coal mining or making paper clips <laughs> or anything, they were using Microsoft. And Microsoft's penetration into that corporate substrata is quite deep and almost impossible to dislodge. And so what Microsoft brings to the table from, for OpenAI is the ability to operationalize this at scale, uh, which I think I, we mentioned, we talked about in our previous conversation, which other companies simply could not do. Amazon is a bit too rapacious, not that Microsoft is not, but there's a, there's a flavor to Amazon's way of doing this that's a bit too grabby from the beginning, whereas Microsoft, I think, is, is a bit more like Mark Antony, there's sweet words, and then the knife comes. But at first, there's a lovely speech about how honorable you are. And Google, well, I, I think that people who actually want to get things done in a, in a business environment understand that, that, that Google um, is not the company um, to help you uh, get that done in, in an efficient manner. Because we already see this with Microsoft. I mean, they move so adroitly, whether the, the products are terrible or whether they are useful to people, they move quite adroitly to integrate these products with their existing product line. And uh, the way that they have pivoted is, is actually we talked about things that are impressive but not helpful. Well, this is an example of that. It is impressive how they have actually productionized this, but it's not helpful. But they demonstrate the value to, to OpenAI of, of, of this partnership, I think. I'm speaking with the software engineer and longtime critic of artificial intelligence, Dwayne Monroe. So what practical applications will this have for, uh, for Microsoft? Well, during uh, the demonstration that uh, Nadella and a few other senior executives at Microsoft gave when the Microsoft 365 Copilot product was unveiled, was the promise of people being able to just generate text via Word, for example, and also uh, the use of PowerPoint to be able to generate images. So, for example, uh, you can see a value of this to companies in which uh, they don't have to pay artists anymore to do, and, and neither does Microsoft. That's their hope, I, I'm, I'm thinking. They won't have to pay artists to produce uh, art for, say, the backgrounds for PowerPoint slides. And this seems minor, but it could have a rather large um, impact on the prospects for the, the armies of people who produce some of the things that happen um, on the background that make these, these products uh, attractive and useful to people. Uh, of course, it's built upon the work of artists already who are not being paid. That's uh, that's what Dali certainly does. Just as ChatGPT um, is built upon the text of people, it, it didn't just start writing things out of the blue because it's you know some kind of genius system. That's the productivity suite side. On the Azure side, I believe that what Microsoft's gambit is here is to create what's called an application programming interface or API sort of superstructure in which companies around the globe will build a large language model, that is to say ChatGPT and Dali-style systems, having to pass through Microsoft as the way to get access to, to the system and therefore pay a fare. They will become like the central hub, the, the monopolistic controller of access to large-scale computation of this sort. For whom? Corporate clients? Yeah, for corporate clients, primarily for large corporate clients. You can imagine, um, and also for startups, there'll be many startups who in the past would have had to have stood up their own environments who now can say, well, via an application programming interface and API, we can make use of Microsoft's what's called OpenAI Cognitive Services, plug into that and then build our service with their service on the background and then sell our service to other people. So the term I use is that this makes Microsoft the super rentier. And these other services, kind of the, the sub-rentier in a way. But all roads would, would then lead to Microsoft. I have uh, some friends who've been or programmers, and uh, they've had um, 
ChatGPT write some pretty simple scripts. Um, what are the possibilities of uh, replacing programmers with uh, AI? It's not surprising to me that there's a number of uh, repeatable um, software development patterns that can be done via uh, Copilot, which is the product, the ChatGPT, or the large language model built code creation system that, uh, that Microsoft developed a while ago. It's not surprising because there's many things like, let's say, for example, there's a function where you just need to grab a file from location A and drop it to location B. That's something that, you know, is done over and over again. It's quite simple. Um, and there's other types of functions that developers use, libraries that they use over and over again that don't require a lot of creativity. Um, so it's certainly helpful to developers to be able to grab those sorts of things and, and sort of autofill those functions and then tune them to your need. Now, there's more complicated types of software development or more tuned types of software development, like let's say, for example, control planes for um, chemical plants. And there's all kinds of computation that the internet scale development does not take into account. Um, and so I think that software developers will not be out of a job, but that doesn't mean that companies won't believe that they can replace them. This is kind of the big problem um, is that uh, you can see companies foolishly letting people go and then hiring them back at lower wages, you know, because they thought they could replace their development teams with ChatGPT or, 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 or Copilot. And then they discover to their dismay that they cannot, they just can't have prompt engineers, it's now called, saying, oh, you know, make me a program that does the following things. And it, it's produced and then it just runs. That's quite impossible that you went from soup to nuts, just build a, something that was addressing, say, your customer's needs, your customer's requirements a, via a total automated fashion. But I think that companies are going to believe that. They want to believe it because they think that they can then get rid of these very expensive developers and replace them with automation, which of course is always the goal. My God, I mean, as far back as NT40, which was a server operating system that Microsoft produced in the 1980s, 19, early 1990s, Microsoft was marketing that as being so intuitive and so intelligent that you wouldn't need server administrators who are of course expensive. Now that was a lie, but there, there were companies all those years ago who believed it and actually got rid of people only to discover that, you know, nothing worked after a few weeks. Now, we've seen many times in the past uh, the threat of being replaced with a machine has uh, had a very um, demobilizing effect on the, the working class. That's right. It makes people inclined to surrender, to be very agreeable. Right. Um, are we going to see this extending into new areas now? I think so. Um, this, this has long been my critique of so-called AI. Um, which is as a propaganda effort. Like it doesn't matter if you can build uh, self-driving trucks or not, but if you keep saying you can and no one is telling um, people that that cannot be done or what the challenges are, then of course, maybe truckers would believe that and then not demand what, what they are due because the company might say, no, no, you know, if, if you, you know, have better working conditions and, and better wages, we can replace you with, you know, this computer. Of course, that's a lie, but, but, but that lie can be used strategically. And I, I think, yes, part of this hype is indeed that if you, if you detangle the hype and look into it a bit more deeply, you do notice that, that uh, one of the themes is every job is, is on, on the chopping block. Everybody's job is on the chopping block. Now, just on the face of it, that's just completely absurd because you, you ask people simple questions like, well, what, the... My dentist will be replaced by ChatGPT. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, the dog walkers will be replaced by ChatGPT. I mean, my accountant who has to deal with, you know, uh, various tax jurisdictions will be replaced by ChatGPT. What are you talking about? But obviously the attempt is to demobilize um, uh, at the highest level. And, and then there are the, the, willing, the willing idiots who, who just kind of go along with this because they think it's just exciting. They don't even know what they're talking about as far as what the implications would be, even if that were true. Um, and it's not. And, um, and so, yeah, that what we have is this, this, this assault, I think, on the, the will of workers to, to, to stand up for themselves. I was interested uh, in your comment about the crypto hucksters moving into this space. Uh, can you talk more about that? Yeah, the, the collapse of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX exchange, the, the collapse of so many of these, uh, of these exchanges and the collapse of the entire crypto market, along with the, the collapse of the Web3 delusion. Uh, my God, like last year, I was hearing nothing but Web3. All the time, people were just Web3 this and Web3 that. And then you would ask, well, what is Web3? And then you, then you would collapse into some kind of uh, 
gyre of, of, of nonsense. Those people, of course, as delusional as they are, they have no choice but to accept the fact that they're not making any money on crypto. Um, and their goal is to make money. And if you're not making money, then why are you continuing to hype it? And so they are, they're pivoting to AI because now there are the big players are actually helping them with the hype. And there are major corporations you know, that are buying into it. And so now there's an opportunity to sell yourself. And you see this on Twitter. You see this on LinkedIn. There are people who are just marketing themselves as the experts to help you and your organization understand how to make the most of this bold new era of AI. Now, there's nothing they really can help you with, but but, but there's executives and, and various other people who are quite foolish who will believe it. And so there's an opportunity at this time for people to take advantage of the hype train in order to make a living for themselves. Now, this requires an immense amounts of computing power, right, behind the scenes? Yes, it does. Yeah. Quite a bit. Thousands, for example, ChatGPT running on the Voyager supercomputer, many, many thousands of computational elements, not to mention cooling and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like a tremendous power um, demand. So this is not exactly what you'd call uh, climate-friendly stuff. Well, no, no. And, and, and we know that um, there have been various – it's difficult to get hard data because the companies, of course, are very stingy with it for obvious reasons. But yeah, there's, there's uh, some good indications that data centers – um, have become um, a, a very large uh, generator of of carbon of a carbon footprint. In, that, in other words, that the amount of energy that they are drawing, uh, or what's required to generate energy for them, is not helping us at all. And also, um, it's important to remember that data centers in which in which these supercomputers reside uh, take up real estate. So you know, there's just acres upon acres of land just in these flat warehouses filled with computational machinery. Well, it's funny because, you know, the illusion of everything around tech is that uh, it's weightless. You know, this goes back to the, you know, the, the myths of the late 90s, the new economy business. And it's just so deeply material. It's material demands are enormous. Yet people, I mean, it's easy to understand why people get this feeling. It just seems like mysteries are happening behind the screen that you can't even imagine. That's right. One of the reasons that I I am immune to this is because I, you know, I worked in the data centers as I mentioned uh, a few times, like I, I cut my hands um, and hurt my knees, like racking these, these, these giant servers and getting them configured and getting them running um, and, and uh, being super chilled in a, in a data center and all and monitoring these systems as they and having my Friday nights wrecked when the system would go down and so forth and so on. So none of it is immaterial to me. I, I know exactly what these guys are doing behind the scenes, but that's a privilege. And it's a privilege that fewer and fewer people have access to, actually. Um, and I realize that it's a privilege because, yeah, it just so happens that my career followed a path that allowed me to, to work on, on large-scale systems. And, and I, that's why I feel it's important to kind of share um, whatever I know about this. So finally, what's, what is the correct attitude to take towards this stuff? Uh, fear, extravagant uh, hope, a shrug? What do you say? <laughs> I would advise being alert to impact. Number one, remember that there are computers behind the scenes consuming power and that, they, and that they're part of supply chains. So toss the ethereal idea out of your head. Um, and number two, always focus on impact. What are these things used for? Not what people tell you, but, uh, but what can be tracked? How are these systems impacting people's lives? And you're not going to get that information from Microsoft or any of these companies. You'll have to seek out uh, others who, who are doing work, um, such as Tim Nagebru and, and Emily Baker and others who are doing really good work in trying to uncover the impact um, of, of these systems on our, our world. I was a software engineer, Dwayne Monroe. You heard Dwayne making fun of last year's hype about Web3. Longtime listeners may recall that we had Molly White on the show to demolish that piece of foolishness last June. Behind the news, I was in the critical cutting edge. After we recorded the interview, Duane apologized for mangling the name of one of the sharper critics of AI, Emily Bender. She's at the University of Washington, where she specializes in computational linguistics. The other name he mentioned, unmangled, was that of Timnit Gebru, who was driven out of Google for her criticisms of AI. Among her objections was the racial bias of facial recognition, she's of Ethiopian origin, the ecological harms of the intense computing power behind the apparent magic, the racial and other biases incorporated through the model's uncritical appropriation of existing texts, and the potential for abuse, such as fooling people because of the apparent credibility of their prose output. 
The paper that turned out to be too much for Google had Emily Bender as one of its co-authors. On Wednesday, a group of tech luminaries, including Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak and Renaissance man Elon Musk, whose allegedly self-driving cars have been in hundreds of accidents, causing numerous injuries and deaths, they signed a letter calling for a pause in AI research because of its social risks. Among the risks they named were the spreading of propaganda and untruth, a funny euphemism for lies, job destruction, and loss of control of our civilization, though you have to wonder about the quality of the people who are controlling civilization now. Emily Bender, the AI critic I discussed earlier, greeted the letter with a string of critical tweets. Among them, I'm glad that the letter authors and signatories are asking, should we let our machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? But the questions after that are just unhinged AI hype, helping those building this stuff sell it. That's the end of the quote from Bender. Besides, constraining this research would require a political system rather different from the one we live under. But maybe we already live under that system I'm dreaming of. Well, no, but let's for a moment step into the fantasy world imagined in a speech a few weeks ago by Donald Trump, speaking of the Conservative Political Action Conference. The sinister forces trying to kill America have done everything they can to stop me, to silence you, and to turn this nation into a socialist dumping ground for criminals, junkies, Marxists, thugs, radicals, and dangerous refugees that no other country wants. No other country wants them. If those opposing us succeed, our once beautiful USA will be a failed country that no one will even recognize a lawless, open borders, crime-ridden, filthy communist nightmare. That's what it's going, and that's where it's going. I used to say that we will never be a socialist country. I said it oftentimes. But I'd shout it out loud, and I was right, because that train has passed the station long ago of socialism. It never even came close to stopping, frankly. We're now in a Marxism state of mind, a communism state of mind, which is far worse. That was you-know-who speaking to CPAC on March 4th. We went straight to communism without passing through the transitional socialist phase. Who knew? That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this some of Peppers from the new album by the newly engaged Lana Del Rey. Till next week, bye. Take a minute to yourself, skinny dip in my mind.